This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. We dedicate this episode to the Boeing 707, and our guest is the facilities manager for the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, which displays a Boeing VC-137C used as Air Force One for seven U.S. presidents. In the news, Lufthansa looks to reactivate some A380s, when it's a good idea to toss something into the cockpit, and how old planes are repurposed. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 707 of the show where we talk aviation. You might have noticed that we passed episode 700 without much fanfare. Well, that's because we're airplane geeks and 700 doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. It's just a number. But 707, well, that's a different story. So we're happy to celebrate the Boeing 707 this episode. And to help me do that, we have first David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hey, everybody. Looking forward to having a presidential conversation tonight. (laughs) Very good. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Hello, everyone from Portland, Maine. Great to be here and so happy to be celebrating episode 707. And Micah, I haven't seen you since, well... Yesterday, I guess. So we'll, we'll be talking about that. You're more sick of me than usual. I guess so. But, uh, you know, someone I'm never sick of is Brian Coleman. He's with us, our former associate producer, co-host, field contributor, all of the above. Hi, Brian. Yeah, the man with too many titles. Yes. Yeah, welcome, everyone. Hope everyone had a great Fourth of July. Now, Rob Mark will be joining us in a little bit. Of course, he's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He is the publisher at JetWine.com. And Max Trescott, host of Aviation News Talk podcast, is off this week. So we'll look forward to having him next time. Now, our guest this episode is John Laney. He is the facilities manager for the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. That's located at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Now, John's got a kind of an interesting history as to how he became involved in that. Back in 2005, October 2005, John was asked to help the foundation on a temporary basis. The Air Force One Pavilion was being transitioned from the general contractor to the Reagan Foundation. Well, that temporary job turned into a 16-plus year career with the foundation. John's responsibilities include the operations and maintenance of foundation property and displayed artifacts, such as the Air Force One Pavilion and SAM 2700. That's the Boeing VC-137C aircraft that saw duty as Air Force One. He also oversees construction projects, contracted services such as maintenance and various trades, as well as special event logistics. So, John, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Now, John, the uh, the SAM 2700, of course, the 2700, that's uh, part of the tail number. That's where that designation comes from, I guess? Correct. Uh, SAM 27, or 26, actually 26,000, 
and 27,000 are the two aircraft that were or 707s that were specially built as Air Force Ones. And yes, that is the tail number. All right. Well, we're going to kick off this episode with a piece that Micah recorded for us on the 707. And uh, Micah, do you need to uh, set this up anyway, or can we just let it go? I think it speaks for itself. Episode 707. That's quite a milestone and a lot of shows, about 14 years worth of them. That's an amazing feat on its own. But 707 is a magic number for airplane geeks, and that's airplane geeks in both upper and lowercase letters. The number 707 means something special to us, the dawn of the jet age. The Boeing 707 is the aircraft that created world travel as we know it today. Yes, I can hear you already. The Boeing 707 wasn't the first commercial passenger jetliner. Trust me, I know. That honor, of course, belongs to the de Havilland DH-106, the Comet which started service with BOAC in 1952. The Comet was an incredibly prestigious project for the entire British aerospace industry. But you may recall that due to design flaws and several hull losses, the Comet was taken out of service in 1954. It was redesigned and didn't go back into commercial service until 1958. For various reasons, the Comet disasters gave Boeing the lead in commercial jetliner production, and the 707 became the first successful commercial passenger jet. In 1958, it debuted with Pan American World Airways, Pan Am. That happened 64 years ago. Pretty much all other commercial passenger jet aircraft sport from the Boeing 707. You may recall that a while back, Rob gave us an assignment here on the Airplane Geeks. Rob asked us to write in about our favorite airplane and why it's a favorite. You may also remember that this was an impossible assignment for me. About eight months before that assignment from Rob on episode 351, I did a short piece called My Favorite Airplane that was about the restoration of a PBY taking place at Southern Maine Aviation, the FBO at the Sanford Airport, KSFM, here in Maine. Then for the assignment from Rob on episode 389, I put together another story, this one I titled, My Favorite Airplane, Again. That piece talked about how I can't name my favorite airplane, and like my favorite food, it depends on my mood and feelings at the time. Well, David called foul on that, and said I didn't follow the assignment correctly. He said I could only choose one aircraft as my favorite. So like a dedicated student, I redid the assignment, and for episode 392... I submitted another piece, this one titled, My Favorite Airplane, Yet Again. This time I wrote about the B-17 and how it's the father of almost all modern aircraft and many current aerospace firms. I even got biblical about it. Remember this? The B-17 begat the B-29 Superfortress, which begat the B-47 Stratojet and the B-52 Stratofortress. The B-47 and the B-52 begat the 707, not as a passenger airliner, but as a KC-135 tanker as the old KB-29 and its derivative, the KB-50, couldn't make enough speed to fuel the B-47 and B-52. And while we're at it, let's not forget the Boeing 377 Stratocruiser, another B-29 passenger derivative. So the 707 begat the 727 and the 737, and the queen of the skies, the 747. Okay. I won't go on, but we're up to 787 now. I also ended that little piece like this when I said, The B-17 Flying Fortress, that's my favorite airplane.
today. Well, that was episode 392, and today is episode 707. So my favorite airplane for today is, well, of course, the most appropriate one, our episode number's namesake, the Boeing 707. And why shouldn't it be? It's still flying in one form or another, most regularly as a KC-135 Stratotanker. One form or another, you say? Well, yes. You see, the KC-135 is really a derivative of the Boeing 367-80, usually referred to as simply the Dash 80. The 707 is another derivative of the Dash 80. You see, the Dash 80 is basically the same aircraft as the 707 with a slightly narrower and shorter fuselage. But the E-3 Sentry, the E-6 Mercury, and the E-8 Joint Stars are still flying too, and they are most definitely 707s. So where did the 707 come from? Well, although Boeing was looking at the possibility of a commercial jet aircraft back in 1949, as I alluded to before, the 707 really came about because the KB-29, KB-50, and KC-97 tankers were not really fast enough to refuel the B-47 and B-52. Sure, it could be done, but the old tanker aircraft needed to fly at max speed and the bombers needed to be at almost stall speed with the gear and flaps down. But still, refueling needed to be done in a descent so the formation could be maintained. Back then, Boeing was a different company than it is today, and they were willing to take some chances in developing a new product. They knew that if they could create an aircraft that would suit both the military and commercial markets, they would have something very special, something that no one else would have. So Boeing took all the knowledge they garnered from creating the B-47 Stratojet and B-52 Stratofortress and used it to design and build the 367-80. That's the Dash 80 that we can all see when we visit the Smithsonian Udvarhazy Center. Another reason why the 707 is my favorite airplane? Well, as far as I know, it's the only large four-engine commercial airliner to ever do a barrel roll. Well, yes, again, it was not quite the 707. It was a Dash 80. But as I said before, the only real difference is a slightly narrower and shorter fuselage. Don't believe me that it was barrel rolled? Well, just go look it up on YouTube, and you can watch for yourself. On August 7, 1955, about a year before I was born, Tex Johnston was demonstrating the Dash 80 over Lake Washington outside of Seattle and rolled it. Yup, at about 490 miles per hour, Tex Johnston performed a 1G barrel roll in the 248,000-pound Dash 80, and then did it again. That's right, twice. Just to make sure no one missed it and to prove it wasn't a fluke, Tex Johnston did a second barrel roll during the same demonstration flight. Wow! The crowd was amazed, including Bill Allen, president of Boeing at the time. The story goes that when Bill Allen called Tex Johnston on the carpet for this stunt, Tex was able to justify his most definitely unauthorized maneuver by saying he was just selling the airplane. The apocryphal story goes on to say that Bill Allen said, Okay, just don't do it again. Now, I already mentioned that the 707 was wider and longer than the Dash 80 in the KC-135. The Dash 80's fuselage was just wide enough for 2x2 seating, and Boeing realized this wasn't wide enough for passengers nor cargo, so they widened the fuselage for the KC-135, which made it just large enough for 3 by 2 seating. But this still wasn't enough. Boeing learned that Douglas had designed the DC-8, the 707's greatest competition, to have 3 by 3 seating, 
So Boeing went ahead and changed the design of the 707's fuselage again, making it 148 inches wide, one inch wider than the DC-8. The 707 started off as a great success. Pan Am was the first carrier to order them and put them into service. The 707, in fact, was such a big deal that Pan Am had a christening ceremony for it on October 17, 1958, at National Airport in Washington, D.C. That ceremony was attended by President Eisenhower, and it was followed by a VIP-only maiden flight from BWI, then known as Friendship Airport, to Paris. The first commercial flight for the 707, also flown by Pan Am, took place nine days later from Idlewild Airport in New York, now known as JFK, to Le Bourget, Paris, with a refueling stop in Gander. Can you imagine needing a refueling stop these days? Two months after those maiden voyages, National Airlines was the first to fly the 707 domestically, Idlewild to Miami. But those aircraft were leased from Pan Am. In January 1959, American Airlines was the first to fly their own 707s on domestic routes. Then came TWA and Continental. Qantas was the first non-U.S. airline to put the 707 into service. United, Delta, and Eastern didn't buy the 707 and, in fact, lost market share while they were waiting for the Douglas DC-8, which didn't arrive until September of 1959. At the time, many people felt that the DC-8 was going to be the jetliner to wait for. Douglas had a better reputation for commercial aircraft than did Boeing. Think about the DC-8's predecessors when you consider that. The DC-3, DC-4, DC-6, and the DC-7 in particular. Sure, Boeing was the first with the 247, and at the time had the 377 Stratocruiser. Lockheed had the L049, Constellation, and the L188 Electra. Plus there were some British and European commercial aircraft competitors. But back then... Douglas appeared to hold the keystone. As it turned out, the 707 was a big hit from the very start. Sure, there are arguments as to whether the 707 or the DC-8 was the better aircraft, but both were terrific. The DC-8 saw longer passenger service, not retired from the U.S. routes, until about 1991, and there is still a few flying cargo. But technically, the 707 is still in military service. With the 707's introduction, passengers took to jet travel immediately. They loved the quietness compared to propeller-powered aircraft, the smoothness and lack of vibration. More importantly, perhaps, they liked the speed, almost twice as fast as the old propeller-driven airliners. Air travel started to come down in price and appealed to the masses. More people were traveling. As an aircraft, the 707 couldn't keep up with demand. Size-wise, it really couldn't be grown. While the DC-8 was able to be stretched to a maximum passenger capacity of about 269, Due to design constraints, the 707 maxed out with about 140 passengers. It sat too low to the ground to be re-engined with high-bypass turbofans, as was done with the DC-8, and the 707 really couldn't be stretched without a major redesign of the wing and landing gear. Too low to the ground to be re-engined? Remind you of any other Boeing designs, perhaps the 737? So the 707 became a victim of its own success. With the huge growth and the demand for air travel, the 707 was just too small to meet the need. Boeing had the solution, though, and only 12 years after Pan Am put the 707 in service, in 1970, the 747 followed. At almost triple the capacity of the 707, the Queen of the Skies ruled the Skyways, and did for years to come. It wasn't known at the time, but the birth of the Queen was a death knell for the 707. It had 13 good years left in U.S. passenger service. 
TWA flew the last U.S. 707 passenger flight in October of 1983. But the 707 was still well used by international carriers through the 1990s, and a few for much longer. The last passenger 707, operated by Saha Airlines of Iran, flew in 2013. Between 1958 and 1978, over 1,000 707s were built for commercial use, but the line was kept open for various military variants until 1991. The last 707 airframes to come off that line were an E3 Sentry and an E6 Mercury. I was fortunate to be able to fly in a 707 a couple of times. Sometime in the spring of 1976, American Airlines took me to Mexico City on one, leaving from JFK and connecting in Dallas. I remember getting up to use the lab, and having been so used to flying 727s, I commented to the flight attendant that I didn't realize how big the aircraft was. She said she, too, was always amazed by the comparative length when she worked the 707. There are still many traces of the 707 still flying commercially, though. If you look close, you can see that the size and shape of the nose and cockpit of the 737, 757, and 767 are identical to the old 707. The same held true for the 727. It's said that the 737 still uses a somewhat modified version of the 707 fuselage, and the cross-section of the fuselage of the 757 is the same as the 707. In fact, in some ways, I guess you could say, there's a little touch of 707 in every Boeing jetliner. As for Airplane Geeks Episode 707, well, it sure won't have the same impact on the world as a Boeing 707 did, and does. Soon, episode 707 will be forgotten. But what a namesake. What a magic number. And what an honor to be able to be part of episode 707 and share the story of this amazing aircraft. So, of course, my favorite airplane is the Boeing 707. Today. I guess I'm just fickle that way. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. Thanks for putting that together, Micah. Very uh, comprehensive. Happy to do it. It was a lot of fun. I never flew on a 707. I'm pretty sure my commercial flying started with a 727. I don't know. Any uh, any of you other guys ever flown on the 707 besides Micah? Rob? Rob has joined us, by the way. Rob Mark. I did introduce you earlier before you arrived. But I, I wasn't here. And uh, greetings to our guest, John. Um, John, where are you calling from or ringing in from? I'm out in Simi Valley, California, just outside Aha. of Los Angeles. No, I, I, in fact, my first jet plane ride was on a 707, an, an American Airlines uh, Astrojet. Uh, and I remember I thought that was the coolest thing that, well, it was. I don't know what year that would have been, maybe in the mid-60s or something. But, oh, I'm sorry, did I say that? I meant mid uh, Twenty six. Oh, I already said it, so I guess I can't get out of it. Uh, but no, I thought it was the coolest thing because they gave you a meal, and you could eat on the plane and look out the window and see all the lights and and you'd hear this god awful racket, you know, the <laughs> from the engines because we sat somewhere behind the wing. Uh, but I I didn't care. I mean, it was just it was just great. But uh, so Micah and I are uh, are both. Uh, experienced 707 uh, uh, riders, at least. Uh, that was really an excellent piece. And I just had one question. Did you do all that off the top of your head? You must have done some research somewhere, right? Who do you think I, I, mean, I am, David Vanderhoof? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. 
You know, one thing I didn't realize was that the the 747 came along as quickly after the 707 as as it did. I in my head I had an image of many many more years elapsing between between those airplanes. Well, I think one of the amazing things to me about the 747 is the development time. Wasn't it something like 18 months or 24 months or something from the first concept till they had it flying? And it was just an incredibly short development time. Yes. Well, of course, now, see, we have computers that save us all that time. Oh, wait a minute. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah, do they? that'd slow it down immensely. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Well, actually, I have a question for you. Do you know if the 747, I had been told that the original application of that was for a cargo, uh, military cargo uh, competition that did not go through and the, the C-5 took over. That's absolutely correct. The seven. Uh, that's why the, that. that's, that's why the cockpit of the seven four seven is set up the way it is, so you could do nose loading. That's what I heard. Yeah, and so yes, it, Boeing originally was going to put it up against the C five for the strategic airlift program, and Lockheed won, and then they quickly turned and made it into a passenger aircraft, which Lockheed was not able to do with the C five. Hmm. So, John, let me ask you a question because we're talking about the the seven oh seven tonight, and and you're uh, you you handle the uh, old Air Force One, the Sam twenty seven hundred, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, and if you don't, that's fine. But I'm wondering how it turned out that uh, the Air Force uh, chose for the presidential transport the seven oh seven, perhaps over the DC eight or other aircraft. I don't know that I could answer that. I do know that there were five 707s uh, that acted as, well, call sign Air Force One. Uh, there were three predecessors to the 27, it's actually 27,000 and 26,000. Um, there was, and I don't know the full tail numbers, but it was 970, 971, and 972. And one of those is at the Seattle Museum, uh, Museum of Flight up in Seattle at Boeing Field. The other one is at the Pima Air Museum out in Arizona. And the third one had very bad corrosion issues. And so what they did is they, they scrapped it. But the word I heard was that they kept the, fu- the front fuselage, the, the flight deck, and that is at the Secret Service Training Center and is being used by their training facility for Secret Service agents to get in and out of Air Force One. Now, I don't know if it's still there, but that was the story I heard. But the previous three, those three were what I was told were off-the-shelf, quote-unquote, 707s that were modified for military air transport use. 26,000 when it came on board, I believe in 62 or 63, uh, that one was purpose-built as a presidential aircraft, as was 27,000, which came on board in 72. And how did you come to acquire 27,000? It was retired back in 2001. And prior to the retirement, the Air Force allowed people to put a bid in, if it was a qualified facility, of course, to showcase the aircraft and to have the aircraft on loan, which I should note that the aircraft is on loan by the Air Force. We don't own it. 
there was one other entity back east that was interested in it, and it was a battle from what I was told. This was before my time here, but it was a little bit of a battle to get it, and at the last moment, it was awarded to the Reagan Library. Hmm. In terms of responsibility for maintenance, does the Reagan Library have that responsibility, or does the Air Force come in and contribute to that? That's all on us, and that was something that coming into this job, I wasn't quite sure how you maintain aircraft, so <laughs> much much less a 707. So, um, yes, we, we display the, the aircraft, and we do allow the public to walk through it, which in and of itself presents a lot of maintenance issues because you have a lot of feet, a lot of hands, a lot of people walking through the aircraft, so we try to maintain it as best we can to the condition that we received it. Um, I'm a little pat on my back. I think we do a pretty good job of doing that. We maintain the exterior of the aircraft once or twice a year, depending on how bad it gets. We do dust the aircraft off. So we actually bring a crew in with uh, uh, boom lifts and dusting poles, and they go from front to back and dust the entire uh, exterior of the plane. So yes, we do maintain it. The Air Force does require us to do that. I also have to put in a condition report once a year and uh, send that to the Air Force. Uh, there are conditions for showing it. So there's a whole contract and lease and loan agreement uh, that we have with the military. And it's not just the Air Force, it's with the Navy and the Army as well. We have some other aircraft and a uh, M1 tank on display as well. And John, I think you're being a little bit modest over maintaining the aircraft because I saw some photographs when it came in and you guys stripped it down to bare aluminum and repainted it on site, right? So that was a heck of a project you guys went through. Okay, I'm giving you the short version of the maintenance part of it, but that was actually when it arrived um, the in 2001 when it was retired, it flew out from Andrews Air Force Base arrived at San Bernardino Airport and was pulled into a hangar. Boeing helped us out tremendously by disassembling the plane. It was brought up here in parts. The fuselage was kept in one piece, but the wings, engines, tail, um, stabilizers were all removed and brought up in pieces. The the main fuselage was actually a trailer was built for it, and a semi pulled it up on the freeway at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, that was quite the sight and quite the engineering feat in and of itself just to get it up here. The superstructure of the building was built, and then they brought the aircraft in onto the second level. And it was like a giant ship in a bottle. They actually put the plane together inside the building, stripped it, as Brian mentioned, uh, repainted it, Uh, back to the presidential colors, because when we received it, it was not the presidential uh, blue and white that you would see. It was a different blue and white scheme that they use for VIP transports. Stripped it, repainted it, shrink-wrapped it, finished the building around it, pulled the shrink-wrapping off, polished it, cleaned it, and as I told Brian when he was here uh, not too long ago, they had one guy with a buffer doing all the, the polished aluminum. And he went around the entire plane and buffed it. One guy. So, that must have taken quite a while. Guy. <laughs> it took him a while. Somewhere there's a picture floating around of him sitting in the uh, engine nacelle 
buffing the the edges of it. So this is uh, twenty seven thousand, and 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 you have it on display at the at the Ronald Reagan Library. What presidents did this aircraft serve? It served seven different presidents. Everyone, uh, first one was uh, President Nixon through George W. Bush. Now he only flew on it once, but technically he was a sitting president, and he flew on the aircraft. So we count it. Was it ever used for other purposes, or was it always uh, flying as Air Force One? Do you know? It was always used as Air Force One. It was part of the executive transport fleet. So if, um, I don't know, if the vice president or somebody needed to use it, they could. However, that particular aircraft, I've talked to a couple of the pilots, and they said this was pretty much reserved just for presidential use. When it was uh, retired, when the VC-25 came into service for uh, President Bush and it was retired as, as Air Force One, or, the, or was it used as transport for, for other high officials or was it just retired completely? No, actually, when the 747s came on board, this was, again, repainted slightly for VIP transport and was used for other high-level officials. Uh, the last official to use it on a regular basis was Colin Powell as Secretary of State. It was kind of his plane, and then it was retired in 2001. And so the plane, as it sits in the museum, uh, the area right now, is it complete? Does it have all of the the components and everything? Or, or were there some, I don't know, some secret presidential stuff, you know, that was removed? There were no escape pods. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was that, I can't I cannot tell you how many times people ask me how, where's the escape pod does the president get to get out the escape pod No that was Hollywood that was Harrison uh, Harrison Ford or yeah I think he was So um everything is complete on the plane as we received it So that's something that we kind of battle with a little bit, and we have to explain to people that even though it is at President Reagan's library, it isn't President Reagan's plane. It is the Air Force's plane. It's a piece of historical aviation history, of presidential transport history, um, and it was used by seven different presidents. We don't own it. We It's on loan to us from the Air Force. So we make that very clear that we received it as it was given to us in 2001. It isn't the way it was when President Reagan flew on it, although we put some pictures in there and kind of dressed it up a little bit. But uh, everything is in there. There was some, there was quite a bit of avionics and communications equipment that was removed. But um, uh, most of the structure was there. And were the jelly beans added or did the jelly beans come with it? Uh, those were added. <laughs> There's uh, recently, you know, been some controversy about uh, what's finally resolved about uh, what the new uh, uh, 747 Air Force One livery is going to be. But there is a long history of the design livery of, of this aircraft that dates back the livery itself, not this aircraft that dates back to uh, the Kennedy administration. Do you know? Correct. Can you tell us anything about that history and, and how it was designed and, and Jackie Kennedy's involvement with it? I know very little about it. I know that uh, Raymond Lowy, who was a very famous and celebrated um, uh, industrial designer, he came up with the color scheme and presented it to the Kennedys when they had requested to change the colors of the MATS, the Military Air Transport System, 
their colors were basically silver and bright orange. And if you see pictures of the early ah, yes, milit- yes, yes. if you see pictures of the early 707 uh, Air Force Ones, they were those colors and not the most, I don't know, uh, uh, how do I put it nicely? They were kind of ugly. But anyways. <laughs> the, That's all right. Yeah, that was nicely. It was not a very nice color scheme. So they went to this blue scheme with Jackie Kennedy, uh, her involvement. And I believe that uh, both President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy approved the design. And then it went on to military and congressional approval. John, can you describe the interior a little bit for us? Uh, sure. The as you From front to back, you have the... Uh, flight deck, of course. You have a small galley up front, which serves the president and the flight crew their meals. And let's let's give you a visual. If you're walking down the aisle from the front with the flight deck behind you, on the left would be the galley. Directly across from the galley would be the communication center. That area is probably the most secure place on the plane because the entire time while it is in operation, there are two officers sitting at that desk uh, monitoring and taking care of all communications for the aircraft. Um, As you continue down the hallway, you'd hit the president's suite. Uh, You'd go around the outside in a very narrow walkway between the president's suite and the windows. And then you have the first lady's cabin, which is attached to the presidential cabin. And then you get to a room that if you ever come here and walk through the exhibit, you'll see there's a big open room, like a boardroom or a meeting room. That used to have a wall in the front, and it could be closed off so they could have private meetings with multiple people in that room. And then if you keep going past that room... The rest of the aircraft from the midway just over the wings to the tail turn into basically a first-class aircraft seats from their back. And there are four cabins. Each cabin, as you were closer to the president, the more important you were, basically. So the first cabin would have White House staff, VIP guests. The second cabin would have additional guests. The third cabin typically had Secret Service in it and any military that would be flying And then the back cabin would be the press pool. Hmm. And then there's a large galley in the back. Just as you exit the tail, uh, uh, just before the tail, there's an exit to the aircraft, and that would be the large galley, and they would supply the food for the rest of the aircraft. Yeah, one of the things that I was surprised at when I did the walkthrough of the plane, the press area, was really just how small it was in that they didn't travel with this huge press entourage that they seem to travel with now on the 747. Um, so I think it was really a, a premium spot to be a Washington press correspondent and be invited to fly on on the aircraft when the president was flying. It was. Um, the press pool was chosen depending on where, of course, the president was flying. If he was flying home for vacation, there were very few press on board. If there, if he was flying to a big international meeting or a trip, yes, if it would be full and they would basically draw straws as to who would get the flight. There was a some sort of a pecking order, but I don't know what that was or, or lottery or however they worked it out. Um, I do know that the press had to pay first-class airfare plus 
that was the going rate. No kidding. So why, why that was, I don't know, but I was told that it technically was a military transport plane and to fly private citizens on a commercial basis, they had to offset the military, their costs for flight. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Do you know, something I was going to ask, John, is that who, uh, who pays for the, uh, the maintenance on, uh, on the aircraft? Is it, is it the uh, library itself or does the Air Force kick in somehow or how does no. that work? All expenses borne for the aircraft from the day it was it arrived in San Bernardino to the to today, every penny is paid for by the foundation. The military cannot pay for anything on it because it's it's on loan to a private entity, and that's not just true for us. That's true for any military item that's being loaned to a private museum or private entity. Typically, the military cannot spend any money to support that private entity. So yes, we've we've raised money and I should back up a little bit and explain to everybody listening that um, there are two entities up here at the Reagan Library, even though we're one campus, we have the National Archives and Records Administration who run the archives in the museum. And then we have the Reagan Foundation, which is a private nonprofit organization, which I work for. And we own and operate the Air Force One Pavilion and some other areas around the library, but the main buildings with the archives and and everything down in the basement, that's run by the government. And I think that's true for many museums. We're phenomenally fortunate here in Southern California where, for example, we have the California Science Center and the Space Shuttle Endeavor is there. And so the state owns the building, but yet the foundation is responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of the endeavor. So I think this is a normal museum um, procedure or policy when it comes to aircraft or spaceships on loan. Yes, yes. And we we have a couple other aircraft here as well, and it's the same situation. Brian, did you mention something about a football associated with this airplane? Yeah, I think... (laughs) Yeah, John could probably describe that a little bit better, but the nuclear codes are in a device that's commonly referred to as the football, and the football gets to ride along on the plane as well. That is true. The uh, The football is a code for a satchel that carries all the codes, and that is accompanying the president wherever he goes. And there's a military attache that is assigned to the president. And when the president is boarding the aircraft and the military attache is right behind him, uh, they usually put what's called the football, which is this case, right inside where the communication center is. And that is, again, one of the more secure places on the plane. And that's where the military is, is staffed anyway. So they, they set it there. And then the military attache is, is there to pick it up and take it with the president when they land. So did this plane come with a football? <laughs> no. No. They didn't let us have that. <laughs> Not even the satchel? Nope. Nope. Oh. They, they won't give us any of it. We, we went out and bought a satchel that looks similar to it. Oh, and so when people, when people walk through, they see it there, and there's a little card to describe what it's there yeah. for. So. I think that's appropriate. Yeah, there, there needs to be something like that, even if it's not yes. the, the real. The real so, so the satchel and the jelly beans were added. Um, was there anything else that you had to acquire to make 
the aircraft uh, appear as though it might have when the president was flying on it? Um, there were some things that we literally went down to the thrift shop and picked up some jackets and sweaters and made it look like it was somebody was living in it. Uh, but there were other items that we did purchase, um, uh, uh, vintage Time magazines and other uh, memorabilia from the, the 80s. And we placed those in some of the areas so the the pockets in front of the seats had something in them that was pertinent to that time period. Um, through the archives, we were able to bring up some binders from actual presidential trips. Uh, these are just empty three-ring binders with uh, photocopies of the trip itineraries in them. So you can see those sitting on one of the tables. Um, items like that. We There are some some interesting little tidbits if you look carefully and throughout the plane. You know, in terms of people living in it was the phrase that you used when you, when you bought some of those clothes and things. One of the big deals that they made mention of when the VC-25 came online, uh, I remember seeing a tour on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or something, was that they had a big living suite with, with beds uh, for both the president and the first lady if she was traveling with him. And it was a real comfort area so that they, the president could really relax on board and, and, and take some time to get the rest that he might need because sometimes the president does need to rest, obviously. What kind of living accommodations were there for the president on the, uh, on the older, on, the, on 27,000? Very, very little. <laughs> they, in, in the presidential suite, which is the president's and first lady's cabin area, there were two couches, and they pull out about six inches. And if they wanted to sleep or lay down, that's what they got. So there are no beds on board the plane. And if you ever, if anybody ever goes up to Seattle and walks through twenty six thousand, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not twenty six thousand um, nine seventy or whichever one of the early seven oh sevens is up there, it's very different on the interior, and there are fold out beds on that one. So each plane had a little different setup inside. Twenty six thousand's a little different than twenty seven thousand, uh, but no, on ours we have no beds. I'm trying to remember, was there a president of the seven that you mentioned that, that had a dog? Because I'm just thinking, where would the dog sleep if there was no real bed? I mean... I don't know. That's a good question, uh, and no one's ever asked me uh, yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Well, leave it to me. <laughs> There's another question I had about uh, the, the older Air Force One 707s. That, again, you, you may not know the answer to, but... If you remember back to November of 62 in Dallas when uh, Kennedy was assassinated and they needed to transport him back. That's also where, where – 63, I'm sorry, 63, thank you. And, um, and they, that's where President Johnson was sworn in was on Air Force One. But they needed to modify the 707 to actually get the casket on board. Uh, do you know anything about that modification and what they had to do in order to, to fit it in? Yes, there's two quick stories I'll say on that. That was on 26,000, which, by the way, is on, uh, as I mentioned, is at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That's where that one is displayed. Um, and by the way, Wright-Patterson has a, uh, the Air Force Base there has an incredible hangar with a lot of other military or um, presidential aircraft. So they, that was their first choice to get that one. Um, the 26,000... Um, the, they wanted to bring the casket in on the rear entrance, 
So what I was told is that there's a bulkhead immediately as you come into the entrance and turn left to go up the cabin. There's a bulkhead right there. And that bulkhead had to be removed so they could make the turn with the casket and place it where the seats are. So that that was the one modification they made there. Um, Another quick story about you mentioned uh, President Johnson being sworn in. On 26,000, the presidential cabin, there's a very famous black and white picture of President Johnson standing there receiving the oath of office. And many people have seen that. The presidential cabin went from one side of the fuselage to the other. So it was a full width of the fuselage. And in order to get from the front of the plane to the back of the plane, you had to literally go through the presidential cabin. And Secret Service, of course, didn't like that. So they the 27,000, our plane, the presidential cabin's a little thinner, and it has that little passageway on the right-hand side so you can get by without having to go through his office. But that is essentially the same office uh, that they took that picture. And when you're on board the aircraft, it's amazing how tight it was and how narrow it was. And that photographer had to have had a very wide-angle lens to get that. <laughs> yes. Uh, John, you must have some um, uh, sort of special stories or little tidbits or oddities, uh, things that are unique about this uh, exhibit. Um, one small fact is when they brought the plane up from the airport from San Bernardino on, on the trailer, is they even though they had everything engineered out, they had the route set up, they knew exactly where they were going to go, there was one overpass that they knew it wasn't going to fit under, but by inches. So when they approached this intersection or the, uh, on the freeway, when they approached this overpass, uh, they had a service truck following the trailer for obvious reasons, just to make sure there's no breakdowns. But they actually had to pull up, let the air out of the tires, pull the plane under the uh, overpass, and then fill the tires back up and continue on their way. Mm-hmm. So it was one – again, they were expecting it, but it was something that they, they had no other way to get around it. And, John, I think one of the things that people don't know or people that haven't been to the Reagan Library don't know is it's actually – up on top of a hill. So when you say up from San Bernardino, not only are you talking about geographically, you're also talking about elevation. And that's a fairly tall hill that you guys are on. So that must have been something just getting the plane up that hill. It it was. Like I said, it was an engineering feat just getting it up here. Uh, We're at about 1,100 feet uh, at the top of our hill. In fact, where the plane sits, it's about 1,100 and change. they brought it up a street, and it's a very – it's a rather narrow street. It's only a, a maybe a wide two-lane street, and they managed to bring the uh, fuselage up very, very slowly. We had to remove a lot of uh, road signs and, and uh, stop signs to make sure that they can make the, uh, make the turns without knocking anything down. Um, and then anybody who's been up here knows we have a turnaround right at our main entrance. And we had to take a very large tree out that was in that turnaround so that the semi could pull straight over that grass area and into the entrance. But it was not easy getting it up here. Wow. And then, of course, the plane has a spectacular view as well. Yes. Yeah. Right. The, they, I mean, the, they're just these massive windows and the plane gets to overlook the entire valley. 
Yeah, the Air Force One Pavilion was built as essentially a large hangar, uh, a little nicer inside, I'd like to say. But uh, it's a large hangar, and the what would be the open door where the plane would be brought in is a huge glass window, and it overlooks uh, um, a valley right outside of it. And the plane is actually set on three pilings, which are where the landing gear are set on three pedestals, if you will. And the plane is set at about a 2% uh, nose-up attitude. And the, the architect's concept was that the plane is just lifting off of the runway, taking off over the hills. Mm, very nice. So it, it, it's, a, it's a great look. That's yeah, beautiful. John, you must be a real jack-of-all-trades to handle all this stuff. I mean, you're dealing with maintenance, you're dealing with engineering, you're dealing with design, and, you know, you're in this temporary position, quote-unquote. What's your background? I mean, where does your background come from to have such a great understanding and be able to work on this amazing project? Um, I had no idea I was going to do this, and my my background is – when I tell people I have a business degree, they kind of went, it's not engineering. I said, no, I've got a business degree. And I actually put that into effect right out of college and started my own business uh, in the equipment uh, sales and service for commercial uh, spray painting equipment for contractors. And then we got into, I owned, opened up a uh, uh, industrial paint and coatings business did that for 20-some-odd years and sold the business, and that's about the same time that I got the offer to come up here. And I thought, eh, for three weeks, why not? <laughs> and I'm still asking myself that today. What happened to those three weeks 16 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Hey, John, but one of the other fun stories you were telling me is um, your interaction with President Reagan in Los Angeles. Yes, during college, um, I had – I like to say my job and my, my, my life kind of came full circle here because in college, I had a friend of mine who was connected with the California Republican Party who organized events for President Reagan when he visited Los Angeles. And he was also connected with the White House advance team. I say that because one of the things I got to do was drive in the presidential motorcades and not Obviously, the limousines, that was all Secret Service, but the VIP cars that followed the limo package uh, had uh, a group of people in there that we were able to drive. Uh, we were vetted out by Secret Service and did a little bit of training, but we were strictly volunteers, and that was a very unique experience. Wow. Very so cool. when I see the motorcade that's on display right under the wing of Air Force One, I kind of have a little little connection to it. Hmm. Uh, John, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, describe some other exhibits that are there, particularly other aviation-related exhibits or other aircraft that folks might uh, find, visitors might find there. Sure. Um, we have, obviously, we have Air Force One. In the, in the pavilion with it, we also have Marine One. It's a very old uh, VH-3A uh, but it's fitted out and painted to look like Marine One. It actually flew up here and landed on the back lawn and before they uh, craned it into place. But uh, people can walk through that. We have the motorcade, as I spoke of. Um, then outside, we have a F-14A Phantom, uh, Phantom, the F-14A Tomcat. Sorry, wrong plane. Yeah, right. um, 
And then we have a 117 uh, stealth fighter that we just got about two years ago. And then we also have an M1 Abrams tank that we just got uh, uh, last year. And so we have uh, a few other things on display. You said you had part of the uh, part of the motorcade. Do you have one of the old beasts there? It was not one of the beasts as you refer to today, but it is a 1983 Cadillac limo that was used. Uh, that is on loan to us from the Secret Service. And we have one of the suburban chase cars, uh, which is also on loan to us from Secret Service. But yes, we do have one of the uh, actual limos that President Reagan used. Wow. And then, John, I think one of the other really spectacular displays that you have is the area that you walk through that has the clocks that show the the mileage of um, you know each president or each each um, decade, right? As as, as you walk past the signage? Yes. As, as you walk towards the plane to get on board the aircraft, uh, there is what we call the Flights of Freedom Gallery. And there is a, uh, a digital display above each board for air, all eight boards for each year that President Reagan was in office. And it's just like a counter and it counts up the number of miles that he flew the plane each year. Over the eight years, he flew on the plane more than any other president. That was one of the argument points of us getting it. And he put in just under a million miles on the plane. But uh, he did a lot of flying on the plane. And uh, a little side story, President Reagan hated flying. He did not like (laughs) to fly. And he he wore a lucky set of cufflinks every time he went on the plane. That's interesting. So. Wow. There's a little tidbit. I wonder where those cufflinks ended up. I but think no they're in the archives. <laughs> no escape pods. Yeah, no escape pods. Well, you know, Brian, if uh, if Air Force One was giving out points, uh, President Reagan would have had 1K status. Exactly. No, no, he would have had gold status. You only get gold out of a million. Okay. Brian, for, for those of us who live on the other side of the country and who don't really understand California that— <laughs> okay, that's the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Geographically, uh, wh- where is this located? What's what's it near, or how would you explain it to somebody from the East Coast? Um, I'd refer to it as uh, part of the country bumpkin part of uh, Southern California. So it's it's northwest of downtown Los Angeles. Um, it's a very scenic part of the state. You um, uh, would take. Um, the 101 freeway or the 118 freeway that goes through the San Fernando Valley in order to get to Simi Valley. And John, would you say it's about without traffic, a 40-minute drive from downtown Los Angeles? You you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just going to say from LAX, it's about an hour drive, maybe just under an hour, 55 minutes with moderate traffic. (laughs) But when does that happen? That <laughs> two, that's two a.m. A, that doesn't happen often on the four hundred five. So, no, the world's largest moving parking lot. Yep, John. Where can our listeners learn more about the uh, the library and the exhibits and uh, in the? Uh, you can go to our website. It's the reaganlibrary dot com. Uh, you can also go to reaganfoundation dot com and look up the. Uh, I think both of those sites take you to the same 
webpage. You can learn all about the, the library, the exhibits that we have going on. Right now we have the special – our special exhibit, our temporary exhibit is about World War II, Secrets of World War II. Um, it's actually a very cool exhibit that we got to put together. It's kind of it fun is. when – you mentioned earlier – I'm kind of a jack of all trades, and we get to do so many different things here that are so fascinating. And when you get to actually work with moving a Sherman tank into place, that's not <laughs> something everybody gets to do every day. So, did you get to drive it in place or tow? No, it it was pushed by a, a special tug that did a great job of ripping up my carpet. So. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the other things that I wanted to say about the library is regardless of your political affiliation, it's a fantastic place to visit. Yes. And there's just so much stuff beyond just the politics of President Reagan. So I highly encourage anyone, if they're in Southern California, to come visit the library. Yes. And thank you very much for saying that, Brian. That That's something I usually lead off with is that even though this is President Reagan's library and it is dedicated to him and, and everything that happened during his presidency during the 80s, we don't push any particular uh, uh, side of the politics. If you're Democrat, Republican, independent, whatever, it's history. If you want to know what happened with President Re- or any president – if you want to know what happened during the 80s with the presidential policies and everything, he was the president from 81 to 89. So this that is that history. And the planes, all the planes and all the uh, uh, artifacts that we have on display here are on loan to us. We don't own them. They're not President Reagan's. They are here for everyone to enjoy as aviation history. Fantastic. Well, I think I'm going to add this to my uh, list of must-see destinations for sure. Great. Sounds terrific. Sounds really wonderful. And uh, John, really want to thank you for, for coming on the show, for taking the time to talk with us and our audience. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks, John. We do have a little bit of aviation news to talk about, the A380. Micah, you found this uh, A380s. Well, the the news hasn't been good for the A380 in the past, but this is a little different. Yeah, Lufthansa is reactivating their A380s. Uh, Apparently, they they feel the need for them. And frankly, I think this is the perfect time to bring the A380 back because we're having so much difficulty with finding uh, pilots and finding flight attendants and finding ground crew that wouldn't you want the plane that could transport the most passengers I think it's going to be uh, a, a good price metric because you can get more passengers on the plane per person that you're employing, and you don't have that many people that are employed. So I think there are a couple of things driving this for for Lufthansa. Um, it, back in, in 2021, uh, Lufthansa decided to phase out some of their long-haul aircraft, including the A380. And in fact, they sold off six of the aircraft uh, but now they may reactivate some of them. They're still, I think, looking at, at how many and for what routes. But there, there are really two factors here, I think. Uh, one is that they're seeing the increased travel demand that most airlines are, and they're looking ahead to 2023 and thinking that, well, they need that capacity. But the other thing going on here is that Lufthansa has been in the middle of a, well, a fleet renewal, if you will. They're 
looking to add more Airbus A350s, also 787s and, and 777s. But there have been delays, as, as we know, for some of these aircraft. And so Lufthansa is considering, well, filling the gap in the capacity that they'd like to have with some of these A380s that they had previously parked. So, yeah, it's uh, great news for A380 fans. Yeah, I thought they were responding to the letter that I wrote into them saying to bring it back the Los Angeles to Frankfurt route so I could actually fly on an A380 since I've never flown on one. That too. Yep, that too. Yeah. That, that, about was, me. that was my first thought, really, because I said <laughs> Brian will be able to use his United points on Lufthansa if he wants to. So it's a perfect way for you to do it. But you know what I loved about this, them bringing it back? It's this little piece of trivia is that as far as I know, and I'm sure we'll get letters if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure Lufthansa is the only one that's flying three different four-engine commercial jets, the, the only three that have been in existence for a while, because they still fly the 747-8 and and they fly the A340. So all three of them are flown by the same airline. Wow. Well, I have another little interesting tidbit that amongst the five of us, there is only one of us who has actually flown the A380. <laughs> yeah, I know who that is. David, who is that? <laughs> ha, ha, ha. And, and the reason why he's asking me that is the first time I met Rob... I don't know if everybody's heard this story. I picked him up at Dulles Airport. And as we were walking to the car, and I had been with him for a whole 10 minutes, I made a complete idiot of myself. I looked up and saw a brand new British Airways A380 coming down and going, wow, that's my first time I've ever seen one. And I looked over at Rob and I said, have you ever seen one? And this was approximately three weeks after he was in Toulouse and flying them. <laughs> Much to my surprise, I felt like a complete idiot right after that moment. Uh, well, the good news about that, though, David, was that I had so many times to, re uh, to uh, you know, improve my score about feeling stupid that, you know, I've, I've definitely uh, passed you by. So, <laughs> But, it, no, it was fun. But you know what was really cool about that was that that was the first time that I think I had ever been uh, that really at Dulles in that location where we happened to see Atlantic. I had, I had flown into Dulles to change planes and things like that, but I'd never spent. So that, that brought, you know, even thinking about that is, is like another, God, what was that, 12 years ago or something? And did you eleven years ago? Did you fly the first A three eighty off the line? Do you know offhand, or was it? Oh no, no, it was um, it was serial number. I'd have to go back and look, but uh, uh, it was one of the ones that was decked out in the Airbus uh, uh, logo, uh, and and no airline or anything. Because I'm wondering if Brian and I were actually on board the same A380 as the one that you flew because it was owned by Airbus at the time and it was being retired as it was one of the, the older ones. I wish I had the tail number of the one that we visited in Farnborough so many years ago. I was going to say I could look. Oh, I've got the, I've got a picture of the tail of that airplane actually because uh, a friend of mine came to pick me up uh, in his Bonanza at Toulouse and uh, and they parked the Bonanza right next to the A380. And I thought, oh, this is the coolest picture I've ever seen. No one's ever going to believe I did this. So I got a picture of that, too. But I'll, I'll have to see if the uh, – I don't know if the tail number's on the vertical stabilizer 
on a uh, on an airplane in France, or is it on David? Do you know, or is it on the back of the fuselage? Uh, I think it's on. The, I think it's on the fuselage. I think it's pretty. Standard. I'll have to go see if I can find it. Anyway, so Rob, w- did you know that they were going to uh, allow you to fly this thing, or, or were you just along oh, for God, the ride? No. And they said, "Hey, no, Rob, no, no, take no, the no. stick." No, I was actually I was doing a story for AIN at the time about the uh, uh, break to vacate uh, technology that uh, Airbus had developed, which was essentially a system that could tell the captain, based on your weight and the runway conditions and the wind, uh, you can expect pretty, you know, you can pretty much guarantee you'll be able to turn off at this taxiway. And and the reason it was developed was that, you know, when you get a, I don't know, half a million pounds or whatever it was at landing weight uh, stopped and you just missed the taxiway by 50 feet, it takes a lot of power and a lot of time to get that airplane moving on the runway again, and uh, and so they wanted to, they really wanted to pinpoint that. Now, of course, everybody has it, but at the time, uh, that was what they wanted to demonstrate. And they said, "We're going to go out and show you in uh, our demo demo airplane." And I went, "Oh yeah, okay. Well, it was going to be tomorrow." And I said, "Oh yeah. Well, what are you going to do it? We're going to do it in a three eighty. I said, "Oh, cool. Well, I've never been on one of those." They said, "Well, you're, you're going to get to fly it." I went, get out of here. You're not going to let me fly an A380. I mean, I've never even been. And they went, no, seriously, we've got a Czech airman that's going to fly with you and, and two other journalists. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I tell this story a couple of times, but I went out to a little a little store in, uh, in Toulouse, and I bought myself a video camera. I, I don't even remember what I paid for it. But uh, because I said, if I don't get somebody to shoot some video of me flying this airplane, as long as I live, no one will ever believe that I actually did it. Uh, but it was it, and it was a grand experience. And Brian, if if any of you guys or any of you have a chance to fly on the 380, you've got to do it on the top deck, um, not necessarily in the cockpit. But I'm just saying on the top deck, because if you're sitting in the cabin and they pour the coals to it on takeoff, you will swear to God the airplane's not moving fast enough for it to lift off because your depth perception, even from, I don't know, what are those windows at that point, maybe 40 feet off the ground or something like that. But uh, and, and that was the first thing that I noticed when I flew it. The guy, you know, he called rotate, and I went, well, we're, we're not going fast enough. He went, <laughs> rotate. And I went, okay, because I, I was looking out the window, and I, it just didn't seem as if we were fast enough to fly. And he said, oh, you've got to look at the instruments from now on. I went, <laughs> okay, right, sorry. I, But so that was a great experience. Oh, and by the way, it would, it would be hard to be uh, on the top deck in the cockpit since the cockpit of the A380 is on the lower deck, which is what gives it that ugly big forehead. <laughs> not me, but the airplane, you mean. Yeah, the airplane, not you. <laughs> Right, I, I knew that. No, no, no yes. me and the A380, we have the same forehead. All right, <laughs> moving on. The, we have an item that uh, Max Trescott tossed in here. Uh, woman forgets purse while boarding flight. Ground crew does the unthinkable. And so this is a, it's a short little little video, but apparently it's gone, gone viral. And this is a story about a woman who uh, left her purse, I don't know, in the boarding area or somewhere, and um, aboard the plane, door was closed, jetway pulled back. Somebody, 
somebody found her found her purse, and I'm not sure how they knew that it, it was for a passenger on that plane. Uh, but in the video, you see an airport worker, and you see one of the pilots with the window open, uh, with his uh, uh, hands prepared to catch, and this airport worker tosses the purse from the edge of the passenger bridge right into the waiting hands of the pilot in the cockpit. It, it was just like a perfectly executed toss. I mean, if I had thrown that thing, I would have been so nervous about getting it to where it, you know, to the to the pilot's hands, I would have muffed it for sure. But it was a perfect toss. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. There's nothing worse than, than getting on an airplane and, and realizing... Uh, I, this happened to me on Southwest, oh, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago. I had been somewhere to get a story, and I had all the audio. I put it in the flash drive on the side, and I had it all stored on my laptop. And so I, I got to the seat, and I said, well, let's see. I'm going to get my earphones out and my laptop. And I went, where's my – where the heck's my laptop? Did oh, I already no. take it out? And I went, oh, my God. I said, I, I it's not here. And, and, of course, I, I, I asked the flight attendant. She said, I'm sorry, sir, you cannot get off. And I said, oh, my God, my whole life was. And then somebody came walking down the aisle and said, Are you lo- did anybody lose this? Ah, it was my laptop. And I went, lucky oh, my you. God. I, I was so lucky. I mean, they were really, I, I, I've given Southwest my business ever since. Yeah. <laughs> Not the business, but business. some business. Some I'm business. sorry, I should clear that up, yes. All right, and Brian, you found something pretty interesting in uh, AeroTime. Yeah, so happy that they didn't do this with uh, Air Force One, chop it up and turn it into parts. But there are a bunch of different companies recycling aircraft in pretty innovative ways, from buildings to office space and even taking some of the uh, material and recycling it and turning it into bags and other uses. Um, yeah, someone's doing cufflinks. And just like the the folks down the street from me at Moto Art that are taking aircraft and recycling, repurposing them, turning into works of art. There are a bunch of other companies doing that. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, the article is titled 10 Examples of How Old Planes Are or Were Transformed into New Businesses. And yeah, you mentioned a number of them. Some of, some of these have been turned into hotels. There's a, a jumbo stay in a 747 in Stockholm at a, at a hotel there. Uh, there's, uh, you know, restaurants uh, or, or dining experiences, as they uh, like to call them. One in particular is a KC-97, a 1953 Air Force KC-97 tanker. Uh, that's um, somewhere in Colorado serving up, uh, serving up meals. And then you could rent a Boeing 747 party plane, a uh, BA-747 that's been converted and the uh, you know you can uh, throw yourself or or your friends quite a quite a shebang. Yeah, really nice party. Yeah. yeah. Uh, only uh, well, it says rates start at around thirteen hundred dollars per hour, which actually that sounds about right. Yeah, they have to be pretty good friends, though, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's fun, and there's uh, a number of other uh, items mentioned in this article that illustrate how airplanes can live on. Yeah, there's another one that they missed here at the Compton Airport in Los Angeles. Uh, they turned a DC-3 into a food truck and did a really good job with it. Yeah, took the, took the wings off, put it on a trailer, and 
at the airport, they actually have really, really good food. Yeah. So I've been there a few times for a meal. Oh. So that's not driving down the street anywhere. No, they can. It, they will also tow it around to various places. Yeah, they wow. put it on wheels to really be just like a food truck. Amazing. That's fun. That sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Again, when you come when you come out to Los Angeles, there's a lot to there's do. so many things to to see and do out here. Well, I'm going to be out in Albuquerque in when October, I guess. October, yeah. So that's most of the way there, isn't it? No, you need to come in September for the Cranky Dork Fest for the plane spotting event. That's in September, oh, yeah. and then you could go to Albuquerque. What part of September? Do you remember? Uh, I, I think it's a latter week- part. I think it's a weekend after Labor Day. Hmm. Oh, so that's oh. the beginning part then. Yeah. I, I don't have a calendar open. I'll have to look at it. I can't spend too many months away from home. How would I do podcasts, you know? You're going to drive all the way to Albuquerque. I'm sorry. Yeah. How many miles is that? Oh, I don't know, about 3,000 or something. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. It. What's up with the geeks? We're not driving 3,000 <laughs> miles. <laughs> this one is. Good God. David, you have some events coming up at the museum, I think. We do. I got permission to um, welcome our Airplane Geeks listeners. Um, We have a series of speaker events that will be televised via Zoom, via private Zoom, um, for members only. But have no fear. I beat my boss, and um, our normal individual memberships now, um, which is normally $50 the year for... for Airplane Geeks, if you use the link in the show notes, will be $25 a year for the year. Um, and that will entitle you to all of the conferences, speakers this year and um, next year. So upcoming on the 29th of July, we have a book called Hells in the Streets of Husbaya. And then we've got Colin Cahoon on August 25th. On September 30th, we've got um, Eileen Borkin, it's Unforgotten in the Gulf and Talking. Eileen, of course, has been on the show talking about the book. But And then, just because you think we're a helicopter museum, we have to go do something completely different. Um, we, are, we have contacted and got a hold of someone who collects Star Trek costumes um, and props that have been used on the screen. And with that, we're going to have a um, six, a between six and eight speaker series that for individuals will be $25 a piece, or you can become a member for a year and you can see all of them on various things like um, the design, costume designers, a conversation about the original first movie and how that came to be. Um, the history and, or the, and the politics of Star Trek. So that's going to be a six to um, eight speaker series through the end of the year. And then we are planning at least a half a dozen more early next year. So for 25 bucks, you can get quite a few days worth of nights worth of entertainment um, via zoom, no matter where you are in the world and help the museum. Also, that's what I've been trying to weasel um, us to be able to do for our listeners. Very cool, David. Really appreciate that. And, of course, we'll have all those links in the show notes. Micah, what have you been up to lately, as in yesterday? Well, 
Yesterday was, uh, you could probably answer this as better, as good as I can, because yesterday was a really special day, and I got to visit with Max Flight, among others. It was the Spurwink Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In, and what an amazing, incredible day with perfect weather and 68 airplanes, and I don't know, I'm still count, trying to figure it out. I think there were probably close to 300 people there, is, is, oh, is my count, at least. And, easily, uh, I think, yeah. We we both had non-airplane geek friends show up that just loved it and have put it on their calendar again for last year. And we had some airplane geek listeners come up. Uh, J.D. Goldstein flew his uh, his uh, Cessna Cardinal up. And by the way, I'd never seen a Cardinal close up before. And what a beautiful plane. But he flew up from Freehold, New Jersey. Um, Mike uh, Mike Smith came up in his uh, hand-built Sonics from, from Massachusetts. And, uh, and Bill Barry uh, drove in, uh, spent the night in Portsmouth with a friend of his another former KC-135 pilot that he used to fly with. And you could tell these guys would be dangerous if, if you had too many beers with them. But anyway, and he was up, at, and it was great to visit with him among some of our other friends. And in fact, I got we've been braving about Spurwink for years. I mean, I have for a long time. And Max, you were there last year, and you said it was great. I just got a text from Bill as the show's on, and just out of the blue, he said, and I feel so much better about it, he goes, it was even better than advertised. So yeah. <laughs> that's great to hear because I was afraid we might be over pushing it, but I don't think we were. And I think this has got to be a regular Airplane Geeks meetup. We need to all get up there this, this next year because what a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. How are the pancakes? Oh, to die for. Maine blueberries, <laughs> real, oh, real. Man. Well, you, they had breakfast syrup or whatever that junk is that they but they also had real main maple syrup that just tasted delicious it was uh they were very good very very good and uh, mike and i recorded some interviews with some of the folks up there and we'll have those probably for the next episode and so that'll describe in more detail what the event was like but yeah and you know the one thing i realized that i learned micah that i didn't realize is that this event is always the sunday after the 4th of July, right? It's not just some random Sunday no. in the month, which exactly. makes it really, really uh, easy and convenient for, for advanced planning because you know when it's going to happen. Everybody listening should think about uh, if, if they can find a way to attend next year, the Sunday after the 4th of July. And this was 25 years of it officially, 27 years because the first two were just private, but 25 years that it's been open to the public. And uh, and the other thing that I didn't realize was happening, but is there, is there's always a small car show too that I didn't even get down there. But uh, it's just unbelievable, and uh, and one of the uh, we we've had Bunk Chase uh, on the show as part of an interview. But his his brother owns an ice cream truck, and he comes in. So <laughs> he does, and he comes in with the ice cream truck, and sometime usually around ten o'clock after you digest your pancakes, he's giving away free ice cream to everybody. It's just an amazing day. You can't and and again, beautiful location and perfect weather. I'm going to try to make it next year. Great, great. And, uh, you know, it's a grass airstrip, uh, you know, on a farm, on a horse farm is, is what this is. And, uh, and so it's, it, it's really a, a scenic location, and it's a lot of fun to, uh, to stand there along, uh, you know, the edge of the grass runway and, and, and watch the planes come in. And then, of course, uh, as they take off at the, at the end of the event. And there are cows across the runway from us that we were watching. And, in fact, Max can tell you that even the cows got excited about it. Oreo cows. 
Oreo cows. Yeah. What do they call those? Those belted cows or something? The ones with the you know white in the middle and, and black on the ends? I call them Oreo cows. Me too. So that was great. I, I'm sure we'll get letters about that. but Probably. <laughs> yeah. If you know what those cows are really called, I'm sure it's not Oreo cows. Now, how, how long a drive from Portland was it? From Portland or from Hartford? Which would have been the fastest to get into, Hartford? No, Portland. Oh, from Portland? Oh. I, I'm a mile off runway 18, and I'm 20 minutes from the field. So if you fly in and you, I'll, you stay at a hotel near the airport, I'll pick you up in the morning, although you've got to get there early because I was there at 7.15. In, in the morning? In the morning. It's the only time I'm going to sleep. Well, you want to see the planes come in. I just want the pancakes yeah. with the blueberries <laughs> That's and the worth it for the syrup pancakes. and stuff. This was not a locale weekend, was it? Mm, no, no. No, but it is really easy to get to because of it, it's, it's in Portland Jetport airspace, and, uh, and, and it's only 20 minutes from the airport by Jakar. Now, I don't know the history of this. Maybe somebody else does, of course. Why is it called Spurwink? Is that the name of the person that owns the land or— not currently. I don't know why it, why it's Spurwink. Uh, it's a name that dates back uh, for for years, but it's in Cape Elizabeth. Is a city that it's that it's actually located in. It's this big, sprawling, beautiful farm right on the coast. There's a Spurwink road nearby, so it's some some oh, local. I, but I think there's a Spurwink River as well, or a stream. Oh, all right. We should know the answer to this, that question. We'll have it for you for next year, Rob. And Max, the answer to the cow, it's a, a Lakenvelder. A Lakenvelder. Uh-huh. Oh, gosh, I'm going to remember that. L-A-K-E-N-V-E-L-D-E-R. Okay. Lakenvelder. Maybe we'll find a photo to put in the show notes of <laughs> one of the cows. Rob, you got anything going on these days? You've chastised me for um, not calling on you for what's up with the geeks. I uh, I didn't chastise you. I simply asked... A question, and it would only be someone as insecure as you that would take it as chastisement when I called you up and yelled at you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, uh, actually, I mean, this last uh, couple of weeks since I had my my, uh, second surgery has been, oh, my gosh, it's been uh, recovery mode. And uh, I've got to tell you, for, for those of you that have never been into a hospital, Ignore that possibility. Stay away. Uh, because uh, at, at my age, I've got to tell you, it was not fun. And um, it's it, recovery, it's it's not as quick when uh, you're uh, 70 years old like I am as when you're 25. Yep. Um, but, uh, no, I'm, so I'm just in recovery mode. I, I hope I get out of this mode pretty soon because I want to go back in an airplane. All right. Brian, anything from you? I'm trying to figure out um, why the house gods hate me so much because I figured COVID, I did every possible house repair possible. um, And then more things this past week um, have gone wrong. So I'm spending all my time now working on the house. And unfortunately, I get to um, sort of uh, uh, um, follow in in Rob's footsteps. And I have uh, prepped tomorrow for a colonoscopy on Wednesday. Ah. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know what um, they? Do you know what they call that in Italian? By the way. Oh my god! It, it, it's <laughs> up of yours. No, no. It's an innuendo. Oh. It's an innuendo. <laughs> oh God! Oh. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have brought that up. Yeah, yeah. 
You should. Well, you know, the, the trouble is that once you get started with this kind of thing, the show will turn into old guys talking about their ailments, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, no. I can tell you some funny jokes after we're done, but I won't do it here. No, but I, I actually do have two aviation things going on. One is uh, the plane tags event. So I mentioned MotoArt before. So at, in uh, Torrance, California, August 12th and 13th, they're having their event. So I'm going to be there as well, and I'll have my recorder with me. So that'll be a, f- a fun aviation thing. And then August 29th, I will be flying to Singapore for entirely one day. <laughs> and so I fly, I fly on the 29th, land on the 31st, fly back to America on the 1st. You're a madman. So, yeah, so I, I get to, that'll be my my uh, restart of the journey is the reward.org project and going for three million miles. So I have a bunch of uh, flights planned, and that's the first one. So you can listen to Micah and I on the podcast. Yes. So you're going to take Micah with you in your pocket, or how does that work? Uh, recorders. No, if he wants to come along, I've actually had people. There are two people that have already bought tickets to fly with me on very on some of my oh, upcoming trips. That's God. cool. That's so cool. Yeah, no. Wow. So it's just it's amazing the way this has taken off, and yeah, yeah. So looking forward to to documenting this, and yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun so far. Mike has been a fantastic co-host, and. Yeah, it's it, it's all going well. We have a blast, and you know the subtitle for the podcast it, it is the journey is reward dot net by the way, but the journey is a reward, and the subtitle is two old men fetching. No, it's dot org. dot org. Sorry, dot org. <laughs> yeah. Come on, don't make me go and buy another domain. Sheesh. No, we have enough. All right, I just want to mention really quick uh, at Oshkosh this year, twenty twenty two Memorial Bricks at the Brown Arch for Glenn Towler. And Launchpad Merzari, Launchpad's brick is I-34, Glenn's brick uh, T-36. I think there's going to be a ceremony there for that. So if you're uh, uh, attending, uh, you might want to uh, participate in that ceremony. I wish I were going this year, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm not as well this year. I I plan to, but um, got to wait till next year, unfortunately. Some quick listener mail. Uh, Tom sent in. This is uh, interesting. There's something called Palms to Pines Air Race. It, it, it was an annual air race. took place each summer, uh, July or beginning of August. And uh, teams of uh, women flew from Santa Monica to Central Oregon. The race ran consecutively for 40 years until 2009, the longest-running all-female air race. Well, it's... It's coming back. Teams of solo pilots open to women only, women pilots only, only. Now, students may fly as a passenger or a co-pilot. Requires sport pilot certificate or higher, a minimum of 100 hours of total flight time. So this two-day race is coming up. And that's August 11th through 13th. Uh, We'll have a a link in the show notes, but it's simply palms, which is P-A-L-M-S, palms to pinesairrace.com. So uh, thanks, Tom, for pointing that out. And then finally, uh, Patrick Wiggins wrote and sent in a Clean Technica article, NASA to Aviation Industry. We can develop flight tech to cut carbon emissions. And NASA has announced that uh, the agency, they're seeking partners to develop technologies needed to shape a new generation, they say, of lower emission single aisle airliners 
that passengers could see in airports in the 2030s. So there is an announcement for partnership proposals. We'll have that link in the show notes. And NASA is looking to fund one or maybe more uh, awards to design, build, test, and fly a large-scale large scale demonstrator with an advanced airframe configuration and also related technologies. So this is under the uh, F, uh, the uh, the agency's Sustainable Flight Demonstrator Project that they're looking to reduce carbon emissions in aviation. So uh, take a look at that. Links to that in the show notes. All right. With that, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank you all for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Micah mentioned that we met a, a bunch of listeners at uh, at Spurwink, and it was just really encouraging to to talk to to talk to you who who listen. We want to thank all of you that do that. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Of course, we have a shortcut for each episode, and this episode's shortcut link is airplanegeeks.com slash 707-707. That'll take you right to the show notes. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, David Vanderhoof, any closing thoughts? On to 727, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, or, or actually, you know what? We, we, we have to do 717. Um, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's a commitment if I ever heard I one. know, really, huh? That was pretty lame. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, and, and let me just, because I, I forgot to just, again, thank John Laney for uh, coming on the show and talking to us about the uh, Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Uh, we really appreciate that. That, that, look, that sounds like a really must-see destination. Uh, all right, Micah, anything closing from you? I just got to say, we really do have great listeners. We are very, very fortunate. And it was so nice to meet a few new people yesterday. And uh, and I hope that I get to meet more of you. And David already said thanks for listening, but thanks for visiting, too. Yes, absolutely. Brian Coleman, how about you? Yeah, just hope and everyone, whoever's in town, can come out and visit me at the uh, – the Moto Art event on August 12th and 13th. Plan on being there and listening to Micah and I have a great time with The Journey is the Reward. All right. And finally, Grandpa Rob Mark. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Were you guys talking to me? Oh, wait a minute. Let me get my pants up here again. Because, oh, you know, they keep falling down on me. Wait, get up. Rob, the innuendo Hang isn't on. until tomorrow. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just sorry that I won't be able to uh, attend the uh, the ceremony up at Oshkosh for uh, for Glenn and Brad because uh, of all years to miss. But hey, you know you got to do what you got to do. I mean, but but we'll miss those two guys because uh, uh, you know Micah and I were used to seeing uh, Glenn on uh, on the uh, on Isaac's chats on alternate. Uh, well, you're probably there every Sunday night, but I'm not. But uh, and of course, Brad, uh, what what was his uh, sign off again? Uh, frequency change approved. Good day. Yes. Um, but honestly, the, the funniest thing Brad ever did is that whatever episode that was <laughs> a couple of years ago, where he was trying to find me at Sun and Fun, <laughs> and I I dialed in and and all I heard was Rob. Uh, are you under there? Are you under the porch? 
Come on, Ra. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> and I played that for a couple of people, and they just they just thought that was a stitch. Yeah. So he, he's all, both of those guys are really going to be missed. And for you new listeners, and I know we have some, uh, the people we're talking about here are two pilots, two friends um, that uh, that died in the past year. And so, uh, you know, we miss them uh, tremendously. And both very suddenly, which really uh, suddenly yes, and without yeah. any, we just totally unexpected. Right. So that's uh, that's what we're talking to. If you're if you're wondering and don't know. Well, I'm Max Flight. You can find me at thirty thousand feet dot com, and we'll ask that you all please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Night, night. Fly safely. Be good. And thanks for listening. <laughs> Come on, David. You can do it. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> As he blows out Max's ears. I'm watching the meters go <laughs> deep red. <laughs>